Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for Episode 8. Thank you for listening. However and wherever you listen to this podcast, please leave a rating and review. Today's guest is lighting designer and theater historian Kathy A. Perkins. Her design work has included international productions in Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and South Africa. Domestic productions have been in New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago. She has been the resident lighting designer at the St. Louis Black Rep since 1989. She has been nominated for many Adelco, Ovation, and Black Theater Alliance Awards, and has received the NAACP Image Award. In the 1990s, she traveled to South Africa and helped teach lighting to black South Africans at the end of apartheid. As a historian, Kathy has published articles and resources focusing on behind-the-scenes women of color in the theater. She has published six anthologies focusing on African diaspora women. At Lincoln Center in New York City, she co-curated the exhibition On Stage, A Century of African-American Stage Design, and she wrote Their Place in History, African-Americans Behind the Scenes for USITT. Her books are available online. Visit artisticfinance.com for a link. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ethan. And just so everybody knows, we're recording this on May 21st, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 lockdown shutdown situation. Could you give us a two-minute recap of your career? Well, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Um, I grew up during the era of segregation because I'm 65 years old. And um, growing up, I was always active in the arts, you know, at school, at church, in community theater, but I always performed, you know, singing and uh, playing piano, acting and so on and so on. And I knew at an early age I wanted to become an actress. So I went to Howard University in 1972. And during my first year there, a good friend of mine who was a sophomore asked me, what, it, what was I going to do with a BFA in acting? You know, this is in the 70s. And I told him, of course, I'm going to Broadway to be a star. And he basically said he thought I would be better behind the scenes because he had seen me hang in focus lights and he thought this would be a good you know road for me to travel and because there was so few blacks in technical theater he said I would never have to wait tables I would always have a job and blah 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 I was offended at first then um it it, it really changed my life and I said well let me try this and uh I started doing lighting with him and I switched my major we had a touring house on campus called Crampton Auditorium and all the major concert artists came through. And so I had a chance to work and design with just about anybody who was big during that period. And then I went on to pursue my MFA in lighting from University of Michigan. I had tremendous, you know, advisors, mentors at Howard University. So I was prepared to go to grad school, although I struggled with drafting. And then from there, I went straight to New York. I was very, very fortunate. You know, so the rest is history. You know, I started out in New York and I've just I've been all over the world with with what I do as a lighting person and as a as as a scholar, because I, I do. Uh, I call myself a practicing scholar because I do history and 
I do anthologies and so on. You have a website. KathyAPerkins.com. So I went there just, you know, to look up and I counted how many shows you've done and you don't list all your shows. No, not over 40 years. (laughs) So I actually just counted all the titles you have and just the ones you have listed is 125. (laughs) Oh my God, you actually counted them. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably, it's got to be at least double that. Like, you know, I mean, there's no way to, to ever count it. Oh no, it's around 400. If you include concerts, if you include dance, it's easily over 400. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> the other thing is that you're a theater historian. You've written six books. Six anthologies, and, and one was a, um, a resource book, African-American Theater and Performance, that I co-edited with three other editors. Um, I, I find that fascinating that you do, you do that like on the side as, as a side project. Well, no, it wasn't really on the side. I just did both of them. They were done concurrently. And also you taught for a long time. How did that, when, when did you start doing that? Or actually also combination question of when did you start the historian? Like, was that as soon as you were out of school, you were already sort of like studying the history? Well, no, this, that's an interesting thing, how that even came about. Everything I planned in my life never came to fruition. <laughs> there was always something that, you know, took me to a different path, a good path. I decided to become a historian my first day of grad school at the University of Michigan. This was in 1976. Uh, I was trying to find the orientation for designers. So there was this young white man, student. I don't know if he was a student or a former student or what. I asked him, I said, can you tell me where the um, designer's orientation is? And I think he, I, I figured he misunderstood me. He said, well, the actors are over here, over there. And I said, I'm not looking for the actors. I'm looking for the design orientation. And he said, why? <laughs> I said, because I'm a design major and I need to get there. And he said, well, I didn't know that black people did anything other than perform. And he wasn't being facetious. He was very serious. And I said, well, that's not true. I say, we design, we do everything backstage. I just graduated from Howard University, which is a historically black college, HBCU. And 90% of the people I work with were black. So I know they're black people that work behind the scenes. And he says, well, I have my PhD and I have never read anything about black people behind the scenes. So anyway, I had to go. I said, look, thank you for telling me where to go. And, And I had to run. And so I just remembered throughout the entire day, of my orientation, I was just fuming because I was just so upset by his comment. And after my orientation was over, it must have been around seven to eight o'clock, I went to the library and I must have stayed anywhere from four to six hours going through literally every theater book. And this is Michigan, which is a huge library. And, you know, at the end of the night, you know, he was right. There was nothing about Black people behind the scenes. There was something, you know, the Federal Theater Project, they talked a little bit about that. And there was a book called uh, Black Drama written by an African-American. And he talked a little bit about um, Blacks behind the scenes. But other than that, that was nothing. And I just remember going home. I was furious. I called my sister, who's in school working on her Ph.D., who's becoming a traditional scholar. And I was just telling her about my encounter with this young guy. And she said, oh, you need to write a book. And I said, well, I'm not a scholar. I don't know how to write. And she said, if you don't do this, no one else will. Um, She said, what you need to do is start with all the people you know, interview them. So that sort of got me started. But it wasn't until years later that I seriously started uh, to do the research. So anyway, so that was the beginning of that. 
That's amazing. And it's been a part of you, you know, your entire career. Before you published, like when was the first time you published something? My first publication was around 82. It was an article on Blacks Behind the Scenes. My first book was in was published in 89. And this was on early Black women playwrights. So that's a, a whole nother story. I ended up getting into playwrights, too. You've published six anthologies and then uh, another resource. So has your focus been on Blacks behind the scenes or has it been on playwrights or or has it just been like a... Well, I consider I consider playwrights behind the scenes as well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I initially started with just designers and technical personnel and stuff like that. And then playwriting started because somebody made me angry. They made a comment at a conference. And this is early 80s, I think where they said that Lorraine Hansberry was the first black woman to write a play. And it's like, what? Because there was a book out called Black Theater USA that had a whole section on black women, early playwrights. And then somebody else at the same conference said that there was no black women who've written anything of, you know, any substance before Hansberry. And it's like, okay, I need to work. This needs to be another research project. So that's how the playwright started. Wow, that's amazing. And, I, and I'm 32, so there's a generational difference between you and I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now it's like there's plenty of Black material out there and, and playwrights and plays and musicals. Still underrepresented, probably. Of course. Of course, yeah, always. Yeah, there's more literature out there, yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about your creative personality as a designer and potentially as a historian, depending on how it, it interacts. What is your favorite live event to experience as an audience member? Oh, theater for one. <laughs> well, I like, I like modern dance. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Alvin Ailey. Actually, my first job in New York was with the dance company. I also love the National uh, Jamaican Dance Theater Company because I had a chance to work with them while I was a student at Howard University. They were at the the, uh, touring house I worked in. And so that was amazing to see them. And I love to see various uh, African dance companies like the Senegalese National Ballet. Um, So, yes, I love dance. Yeah. What is a piece of art that you love? It's Well, I was looking at that question. It's not a piece, but I love masks. I collect masks from wherever I travel throughout the world. You know, there's a spiritual quality to masks for me. And in my house, I have a mask in every room or several masks in every room in my house. That's really cool. That's that's unique. I actually don't, I hate masks. I find them creepy and weird and... Well, I always have to know what I'm buying. You know, I have to know what what's the meaning of this mask. I don't just pick up a mask. I need to, to you know, I'll do the research and, I mean, there's certain masks from certain countries, I I know about them. So when I go to places, I know exactly what I'm looking for. Wow. Fantastic. Awesome. Where do you pull your inspiration from? Um, you know, over the years, and I don't do it as much as I used to, um, for about 30 years, I took pictures of skies everywhere I travel. I would take sunrises, suns, well, more sunsets and sunrises. Uh, I would take pictures all over the world. Um, and I usually use these as... Um, my inspiration for doing shows because a lot of the plays I would do were fairly realistic plays. I love using a psych, a backdrop if I can. And usually in in cases like that, because a lot of times directors cannot articulate what they want with lighting. I will take in pictures of my skies, you know, in terms of discuss color, uh, texture, you know, through the clouds or whatever. And I will never forget I was doing one show and the director said, 
I was asking him, you know, his, his thoughts about lighting. And he said, the only thing I could think about is I was in Ghana and I was just blown away by the sunsets there. <laughs> and then the next day I brought in my pictures. I said, okay, these are some pictures that I've taken in Ghana. And he says, this is exactly what I'm looking for. That, that is awesome. Yeah. So I've had several instances where I've just taken in pictures of uh, my skies. For a dance concert, I had to do the director said, I'm looking for certain types of skies because this dance takes place against the the sea. And, you know, we've got the sunrise and the sunset. And I took in some slides and the slides were actually projected onto the psych. So, um, and j- just so if, if people don't know, a psych is the white sheet, the white backdrop that designers light. And, and sometimes it can be painted, you know, differently. And it's interesting that you say that you're obsessed with sort of like the sky image and the psych because the image of the whiz that made me reach out to you was the beautiful psych that I remembered from that image and just has always stuck with me as this beautiful pink purple. So interesting that you say that, that that, that you like lighting them. If I can get a psych in a show, I'm happy. I would not call you like a big musical designer. Like you have designed musicals, right. but it seems like a lot of your work has been uh, straight plays, very serious subject, realistic interiors, exteriors, stuff right. like that. Right. Is, th- is there a reason that, that that's how you have designed or what you designed, or is that just how it worked out? Well, over the past couple of years, like I said, when I was in the New York area, I primarily did a lot of dance. Well, I did dance and, and I did plays and, when I moved out to California, I did a, oh my God, a variety of things. I was doing experimental theater. I was doing classics. Uh, I even worked at the Japanese American Center where I did, you know, Japanese shows. But when I started doing my research on, you know, you know, Black women playwrights, a lot of their plays were very realistic. And I just sort of gravitated to that. And then when I started working in Africa, a lot of the plays I dealt with were, you know, plays that dealt with social issues that were educational. And so those are the plays that I sort of sought out to design. And then people began to call me for those kinds of plays. I mean, very few people would call me for musicals because they figure, oh, well, she's really into serious theater. So let's call her for, you know, the serious dramas, which is great because I also love working on new works, uh, particularly by, by black women. Or women, you know, women of color. Yeah, that's awesome. What kind of music do you listen to? I like jazz. I guess what you call the smooth jazz, but uh, pretty much any kind of jazz. I like gospel music. I'm not into hip hop. I I listen to it when I have to, if I'm doing a show that has it in it. So I need to listen to it. (laughs) So I'm not really into that much contemporary music. Awesome. What are some of your hobbies? I love to cook. I have plenty of time to do it now. I'm trying to become a better photographer. Uh, I, I normally take my own pictures for shows, but I'm trying to get better, you know, and so I'm trying to use this time to work on my photographic skills. And I love to travel. So I don't know if you call that a hobby or not, but that's something I really enjoy doing. Oh, that's a big thing. Travel is the best. Yeah, I, I love to travel. I love to meet people. Before the COVID hit us, I was planning to do a lot of traveling starting in May, but that's not going to happen. So that's sort of your creative personality. I want to have you describe your demographics. I think we've already done. I'm a African-American. I'm 65 years old. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. I currently live in Durham, North Carolina. I'm here because I was working at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. 
or how long did you teach there? And you're just you're just staying there. You've decided. Yeah, I, I love Durham. Uh, I came here in 2012. Before that, I was at the University of Illinois for 22 years. <laughs> so I've I've been around. I also taught at Smith College, and then five years I sort of let academia go when I was in California. Yeah. In between that time, my parents had difficulty understanding what freelancing was. As far as they knew, I did not have a real job because my father kept saying, well, how do you know where you're going to work the next week? It's like, I don't know. That's the whole point of freelancing. And my parents were not, you know, theater people. Um, And so my father never heard the term freelancing and he just really hated. He said, it sounds like a loose woman. It's like, could you please get a real job? Because I need to tell my friends what you're doing. I can't say she's freelancing. So, so anyway, that's why how I ended up uh, teaching. It's like, okay, I got to somehow make my parents happy, but at the same time fulfill my need as a designer. Yeah. Um, and what's your relationship status? I'm single. Always, always been single? Yes. Okay. Do you consider yourself like a stereotypical artist who's bad with money? Or do you consider yourself a money wizard? I'm not a money wizard, but I'm very good with money. I know how to save. I'm not an elaborate spender, no. But I'm, I've always been very good with money. Um, growing up, did you have good financial examples? Remember, I grew up during segregation and, you know, Black people were usually cheated out of everything in terms of interest for houses, cars, anything. So I, I was always, I've always been very hesitant with how I spend my money uh, as a result of that. I mean, we're also looking at a time where my parents had to spend money to vote. So my father, I'm from a working class family, but my father always taught us to save money. You know, he said, and, and I, I follow this philosophy even to today. You know, he said, treat saving like you're paying a bill. So with that in mind, I always make sure I put something away. I don't care how little money I'm making. I pay myself like it's a bill. And so that was one of the good things he, he taught us. Um, and also charge cards were just... Coming out during this period, we're talking about the 60s and stuff. And, you know, he was always saying, be careful with charge cards. I remember my father tried not to have uh, balances on charge cards. I mean, but that wasn't always possible, but he had very few charge cards and he would always try and pay them off. He saw a danger in charge cards. You know, his whole thing was like, you know, if you charge it and you can't afford it, you know, maybe you shouldn't charge it or whatever, you know, unless it was like, Furniture, something long term, but he tried to avoid using charge cards and tried to pay cash for most of what you know came in and out of the house. That's amazing, and actually, those two things are actually really important. And we've we've covered them on previous episodes a little bit. We had actor Chuck Cooper, and he said he came, he got to a point with charge cards where he just stopped. He just got rid of them all, and he said, you know, I pay when I can pay, and I don't pay if if I can't pay, I'm not paying now. Right. If I can't pay the <laughs> bill next month, that means I can't afford it. Yeah. And then the paying yourself, making sure you set aside something, right? that's also become a recurring theme that is really important because nobody else is doing it for you. Right. You have to do it for yourself. Right. So that's awesome. When you got out of college and you start moved to New York, what did your finances look like at that point? They were good because, uh, when, as I mentioned, when I was at Howard, I worked at our touring house, which was like the highest paid uh, student job on campus. And so I managed to save a lot of money from undergrad. So I had all this money saved up. And when I went to Michigan, you know, they covered everything. I had a fellowship. So I saved, so I saved quite a bit of money. Um, so by the time I went to New York, you know, I went there with some money 
and I was with the dance company and we were on the road all the time. And so I didn't have time to spend money on anything. While the company was in New York, I lived in New Jersey with my sister in Hackensack. So we could be equal distance from our job. She was at a, at a university and then I was in New York. Um, have you, throughout your life, have you had any health challenges? Working too many hours. <laughs> and as I've gotten older, I've had to, I've, I've cut down on that because you know how it is working in theater, 10 out of 11s and for 10 out of 12s and for lighting people, it ends up being like 12 out of 15 because, you know, we come in two hours before the actors get there and we're there two hours after they leave. So, you know, that's not a healthy way to work. And I know a lot of theaters are getting away from 10 out of 12. They're doing eight out of 10, which is, which is much better. So that has usually been my biggest health challenge, you know, working shows late and then, you know, trying to balance that with my teaching too. That's, you know, that's sometimes has been difficult in the past, but I actually, I've been able to manage that over the years. Yeah. I think that's potentially one of the good things that comes out of this pandemic is that the New York subway is shutting down between one and five in the morning. Theaters were already sort of starting to get away from the 10 out of 12s, sort of, not not fast enough. My hope is that theaters will now say, well, we have to make sure people can get on the subway and get home. We need to end at 10 or 11. So the thing is, you know, you've got to take care of your health. And that's one of the things I've always taught my students, you know, <clears throat> put your health first, you know, that's so important. Yeah. Um, on a daily basis, do you worry about money? No. I mean, I think with this pandemic, maybe I'm paranoid because... You know, my um, retirement is not heavily invested in any stocks. And I I made a point of that. Uh, Like I said, I'm not a big risk taker, so I don't want what I have to to go away. Uh, And I guess I sometimes get nervous because I do receive a pension uh, for my job in Illinois. And I guess I'm paranoid. It's like, oh, my God, what if the state goes broke and, you know, I don't have the income or whatever. But for the most part, I, I don't really. That's great. Um, and it, to me, it seems like you've been in pretty good shape for your whole career. Yeah. And I'm not one to accumulate a lot of debt. So yeah. Awesome. When you have excess money, where do you put it? I'm a big charity person. So I try and give it to charities. I usually give to educational institutions. I give a lot to Salvation Army, Feed the Hungry. Right now, during this pandemic, I've been given uh, to the Durham Public School System because kids are out of school. They need to be fed. And then, you know, the schools will feed them during the week, but they need to be fed on weekend. And then also just um, organizations where they're just feeding people in general because so many people are out of work. So I give to a variety of places, churches, whatever. That's awesome. Throughout life, have you used a budget? Uh, yes, I have. I mean, I don't have it, you know, dollar by dollar, but, you know, I'll say I'm not spending any more than this for this month. And well, it is sort of broken down. I know what I'm spending on utilities and, you know, certain other items. And I give myself a certain amount of money to just spend on pleasure things or whatever. But no, I I live on a budget. Have you done that since you got out of school? Or when did you start doing that? I think when I was in California for five years, I was sort of off my budget because I was doing more freelancing in. And so it was a little harder to stay on budget because I, you know, when you're freelancing, you never know when your next job is coming. So it's probably when I should have been budgeting. (laughs) Um, All right. What is a fantastic financial decision you've made? I think one of the best financial decisions I made was uh, getting a financial planner. Uh, For years, 
a friend of mine said, oh, you need to get this financial planner. It's like, I'm not paying anybody that kind of money to tell me how to manage my money. And so I finally did. I, you know, it took me until 2011 to do so. Um, and it was the best decision. He really showed me how best to manage my money. So that was a great decision. And so I had him for about three years. So it wasn't like you just said, here's my retirement. You deal with it. He sort of told you what to do. Oh, no, no. We, no, we sat down and we talked through everything. When I left Illinois, I was sort of given like a buyout. So I said, okay, I have this lump sum of money. What do I do with it? Do I buy a car? Do I do this? Or what? Should I buy a house as soon as I move to North Carolina? So he helped me figure all this out. You had a house in Illinois and you have a house where you are now, North Carolina. Well, I didn't buy a house right away. It was six months before I bought a house. Yes. Had you paid it off by the time you sold it? Yes. No. So that was the other good thing. Um, I was trying to sell it and he suggested that you know, don't sell it. If it's paid off, rent it. And that was a really good decision. So I I rented it for two years. And so it wasn't like I was paying a mortgage. What came from the rent was all income. And then why did you sell it? Uh, So I could pay for my other house, the house I'm living in now. I I didn't want to be a landlord from a distance. (laughs) Oh, okay. So now terrible financial decision you've made. Like I said, when I was in New York, I used to do music concerts and this guy I don't I don't even remember I tried to block it out of my memory he worked for some jazz group and he said oh I hear you do jazz concerts and we're gonna do this and blah 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 and and yeah well how do you do that and and, and how many lights did you do for this and blah 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 and I didn't even think about it. I'd basically given the guy a light plot all the colors how to run the show and then about two weeks later a friend of mine came and said, did you see so-and-so's jazz concert? I said, no. He said, those were your lights on stage. Did you like the show? I said, no, I didn't. And then I realized this guy had used my idea, used my lights, used the cues and everything, and I didn't get paid. And what that taught me was don't give anybody any information until you get a contract. Because we can sometimes be too trusting in this business. Yeah. And and that's also, a, it's it's a sort of a gray area because you have to be trusting. So when it comes to contract, it's very easy in hindsight to say, oh, well, you should have gotten it signed or you should have done it. You know, especially as a freelancer, you're doing all sorts of things all the time to keep on top of it. Like a well-organized life is not always a realistic thing. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm very careful about putting things in writing. Um. And then, okay, W-2 income versus 1099 income. Since I'm not teaching, I do 1099. And although sometimes I may have, I don't know, I did like two shows this year that were W-2s because they were connected to a university. Uh, But for the most part, I do 1099s and I do quarterly taxes. That's something I've always told my students to do or I advise young people starting. It's like, please pay quarterly taxes. You don't want to be stuck at the end of the year. It's like, oh my God. I owe the IRS all this money and, you know, I couldn't afford to pay quarterly taxes. Okay, that's good. A good lesson. I'll repeat that. Everybody who gets 1099 income or is an independent contractor, pay your quarterly taxes. But a lot of young people didn't even know that that was something that they had to do. If you listen to my podcast, you know that you should do it. (laughs) You don't necessarily do it because I've said this multiple times that I do not myself. And at the end of the year or at tax time... It's always painful every year for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
<laughs> and I, I would tell people to, you know, get a fairly decent accountant, things you can write off, you know, for your taxes that will make your tax burden lower. And that's really important. So then that question, do you file your own taxes? No, I, I've always used H&R Block Professional and it's, it's been worth it for me. Because I can't even think the last time I owed taxes. All the way from when you started? Oh, when I, when I first started, um, I think I did them myself. Maybe. I don't remember. No, I usually had someone do them. I've always had someone do them for me. I had someone do them for me in California. I think I had someone do them for me in New York. Yeah, so, I don't understand taxes well, so I always had someone do them for me. Yeah, that advice falls in the category of get a financial planner. Right. Get somebody to do your taxes because they just know what they're doing. Right, right. Okay, so now I want to talk about your retirement plan, which is probably going to be complicated because you've taught at so many different places. But I just want to talk about like what, what all the parts of it are. I have a 401k, which is usually something you get through an academic institution. You know, I had one at Smith, but I think when I left, I, I cashed it in, which was probably not a good idea. But anyway, and then I had one at Illinois. So when I came to UNC, you do what's called a rollover. So I just rolled it over. I mean, I've always been with Fidelity. That's like a, a major um, financial institution. So I've, I've stayed with Fidelity. Uh, I've been pretty happy with them. So, and I've also had a, a traditional IRA. So in addition to the, the 401k, I have a, well, yeah, my 401k is a traditional IRA and I also have a Roth. And then I did get an independent, you know, IRA account. So I think I'm, you know, in good shape in terms of retirement. I also put into it, it's important that you put into your own retirement, you add extra to it because it makes a difference. Okay. So, so you're 401k, that's through all your universities. Your IRA and your Roth IRA, those are independent. You do those for yourself. Well, no, that's still part that's still part of uh, Fidelity. Those are all part of Fidelity. Okay. And, but did so did money from your paychecks from universities go into those? Yes. And then I put additional funding. I could add add to it, you know. But but now that I'm no longer there, you know, they can't put into it. But I can put something each year. You know, there's like a limit once you reach a certain age. There's a limit that you can add to, uh, I can add to my Roth IRA, or I can put anything I want to in my traditional IRA. And uh, I, traditional is you tax defer that until you pull out the money later. Right. So when you take it out, you are taxed. And one of the things that I regret that I did not know, I should have put more into my Roth, uh, because with the Roth IRA, uh, the money you put in, it's, it's I guess it's pre-tax. So when I take it out, I don't have to pay taxes on it. So I didn't know that until it was a little too late. I, I'll repeat that because I'm a big proponent of the Roth. And now you can do a Roth 401k, which not every place offers it. Um, you have to make sure you get it, uh, but you can get it. But that is where you pay, you're paying the taxes on it now so that when you use it in retirement, you are not paying the taxes. Right. And I can I can still contribute to it once a year. Well, there's a certain amount I think you can deposit up to like seven thousand dollars each year, but no more than that. Um, and I, I don't want to say the numbers because I can't remember. I think right now it's you can put sixty five hundred into either a traditional or a Roth IRA. But once you over fifty five or over once you're over fifty five or sixty, you, it's seven. They call it like a catch up contribution yeah. where you can try to try to add in a little bit more. Right. 
Um, oh, out, outside of your retirement plan, do you have any other investments? I'll, I'll call your house a pro- your property. I'll call that a little bit of an investment. Right. And I have real estate in Alabama that I rent. Yeah. Do, how, how do you rent that out? Is there a property manager? Yeah, I've learned the hard way. Get a property manager. Yes. It's, it's hard to be landlady when you're, you know, you know, a thousand miles away. So it's just easier. Just, you know, let them take the 10 percent, whatever, and they find the good tenants for you. And is, is that like your parents old house or what is that property? Well, one is my parents house um, that my siblings and I uh, share together. And then there's a house next door to my parents house that uh, I've invested in and renovated. And so, yeah, so that was a very good investment. Nice. And and that, when did you decide to get that property? And did you do it on your own or are you partners with other people? No, it was a, <laughs> it was a house that my parents owned and they got a very good deal on it um, from a neighbor that had passed. And, you know, she was very close to my parents and she sold it to my parents for a little or nothing. And so when my, my mother died, I talked to my siblings and I said, oh, you know, let's fix this house up and rent it because my parents had been renting it out to, to friends and stuff. And they were not business people. Half the time, people didn't even pay them. When they passed, I, you know, I approached my siblings and I said, let's fix this house and renovate it and we can, you know, rent it out. And they weren't really interested or didn't want to spend the money. And so I just did it on my own. You know, I, I took out a, a loan and fixed it up. And I'm, I'm always making, um, you know, upgrades to the house. That's really cool. I'm so glad to have you on here because you're a lighting designer, you're a historian, <laughs> and, and you're like investing on the side. I, I love that. This question is probably answers your teaching jobs, I would guess. But what, what job have you had that was the most financially lucrative? My teaching job. Yeah. And then I have another part of that, which is what has been your most rewarding job regardless of finance? I mean, it's, they've all been because one sort of feeds into the other, you know, my, the, the, you know, academia sort of feeds into my lighting design. And I felt that I was a better teacher because I was out there designing. I felt that I was a better historian because, you know, I I taught a class on, you know, African-American theater. I taught classes on non-Western theater because, you know, I traveled to Asia. I'd been to all these places. And so I could bring a real experience uh, to my classrooms, which was important. And and having to travel to all these places, it really informed my work as a lighting designer because, you know, a lot of lighting designers will say I have a certain style. My style is sometimes very eclectic because I'm influenced by theater I've seen elsewhere around the world. Both areas have sort of enriched enrich the other areas. Your professional network and your personal support network, um, do, the, do those overlap and how have those played into your career? Yeah, they've pretty much overlapped, I would say. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my friends are people who work in the business with me. That's pretty much a trend. I, I think I had one person who was like, oh yeah, my, actually no, I've had two, I guess, that said like professional network, personal network, completely separate. Um, but everybody else has been like, I don't know, you know, I work with my friends and my friends get me jobs and that's, that's how it is. Yeah. I mean, in academia, I mean, that's a different set of friends. I mean, I, I guess I should say that, you know, um, so either my friends are in academia or they're in, you know, the, the business. So it's, I guess you can say it's two sets of friends. Yeah. Yeah. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? 
But I would say hard work. And, you know, I was looking at that. I don't like the term luck. Um, I don't want to say I've been lucky. I want to say I've been fortunate because um, I've had opportunities that have just come along when I've least expected them. And I, I say fortunate because the jobs come ab- about because people know I can do the job. So otherwise, I don't think they would have approached me. Uh, so that's why I would say fortunate. And I've been fortunate in so many instances. Fortunate and blessed. Yeah. So I, I've just had a lot of gigs, be they academic or lighting design gigs that would just come about because, you know, people knew I could do the work. So, yeah, so I've, I've just, I have to say I've been very fortunate. My plans never came to fruition, but other things came along that were even better. Yeah. Um, okay, so now we're going to head up, head to the to the wrap-up. What is your financial goal for this year? Not to lose what I have. <laughs> One of my goals was, like I said, I was traveling. I made plans to make all these international trips, so that's, you know, that's not happening. Um, well, maybe this ties in. What is your personal goal for this year? Uh, not to get COVID-19. <laughs> No, you're laughing. I'm serious. I'm pretty much staying home. I said, I'm not leaving my house until there's a vaccine that's tried and tested. I'm in that, I'm in that high risk group. So, you know. Okay. Um, if money wasn't an issue, what would your life's goal be? If I had, you know, a, even a couple of million dollars, I would love to start a small, a little start. Of, well, if I had a lot of money, I could start a big theater company. I would, would love to start a theater company that focused on new works. And I'd like to have a training program for more uh, young people of color because it's just not enough of us out there working as designers and, um, you know, managers and, you know, just behind the scenes in general. So that would, that would be my focus. And I think Durham would be a great place to do this because there's so much talent in this area. And um, there's a lot that's going on here. Well, not now, but, you know, that would be one of my goals. Somebody's going to hear this podcast and they're going to reach out to you. Oh, and give me some money and give me a space because this is becoming like one of the hottest places to move to. Uh, it's getting really crowded down here. You know, people, are, it's called the Triangle. People are flocking to Durham Chapel Hill, Raleigh. Like, you know, it's, it's a big place to move to. This place is in by leaps and bounds. You know, we got the pharmaceutical companies. We got all these um, medical facilities and uh, a lot of tech companies are moving here. So there's, there's a lot here. Yeah. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career or would you give to somebody who's starting their career right now? Talk to a good accountant. Um, like I said, it was just basic things I didn't know early on, you know, the whole thing about charge cards. And, you know, I was one of these people that would have like 10, 12 charge cards, which was stupid. You know, I never thought about the interest. I just realized, oh, it's ten dollars due this month. I'll just pay the ten, pay the minimum. You never pay the minimum on a charge card because you never pay it off. And I didn't understand that department store cards, gas cards had the highest interest. I don't know what they are, twenty three percent or something like that. You know, I always tell people all you need are like two cards. That's all you need. You know, get your Visa or or American Express or just get one card and. You know, I didn't know to do that at the time. And you want to get a card that's going to give you something back, even, you know, airline points or cash back or something. You know, what kind of card you get is really important. 
So I didn't know those things. Like I said, I didn't understand the whole thing, concept behind FICO scores, because that determines what type of interest you get on a house or a car or, or everything, or even renting an apartment. Because I had one student was saying she was having a hard time finding an apartment because they wanted three months um, rent deposit. I said, three months. I said, you must have really bad credit. She said, oh, yeah, how'd you guess? It's like, well, somebody's asking for three months deposit. It's like, that's not a good sign. And nowadays, there's so many online things about basic finances. There's also books that can give you basic information. Like I said, I'm a big Susie Orman fan, but there's so many things online that you can learn. But, you know, you need to learn how to, to deal with money. You know, you don't always have to have the latest gadget. I mean, I, you know, I would have students who would complain about, I don't have any money, but every new iPhone that comes out, they would have it. You know, it's like, didn't you just buy this six months ago? Or do you have to spend $200 on Beats when you can get, you know, $60 headsets that are just as good? And I don't know. That's great. And also, yeah, because people have told me, you're, you're talking more about people's life and story and psyche rather than money. It's important that we talk about it, but if you want to know the five steps to take to become financially set or good, you Google it, and there's a 100,000 pages. I don't need to tell you how necessarily. I just need you to think about it, and then you go look it up and do it your way because it's not complicated. And and like Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, those, I, th- I think they're sort of getting to their... Oh, Dave Ramsey, that's the other person. Yeah, yes. they're, they're like getting to their retirement. So when, when I was in college, I listened to them and watched their videos and TV. Now it's more like the points guy or Mr. Money Mustache. It's like on, online blogs are, I think, where sort of where we go now. But there's, there's plenty of it. Or in the fire that whole movement. There's a lot of resources. Um, Okay, so some questions from my wife, Nicole, who is a non-theater person. Why do a majority of artists have zero savings or retirement savings? Looking at statistics, it says about 50% of Americans have zero savings. Well, it's probably more than that now with this pandemic. You know, for, for artists, particularly if you freelance, are you talking about those who freelance strictly or just in general? Just in general, but actually we can specify freelancers because they're the highest. I I think the freelancers are the ones that don't have the money because, you know, again, they never know what their income's going to be from month. Well, sometimes they may know for the whole season. I mean, you hear some artists will say, I got all these shows this season. Next season, I don't have anything. It becomes hard to say because they're not in a like a, a educational institution where, you know, you have a 401k and your money's, you know, a certain amount is taken or, you know, um, or it's matched. So that makes it hard. Because uh, that was hard for me in, in California because I wasn't working in an institution where I could, you know, th- there was a 401k, so I had to save on my own. And it wasn't as much. I, I think the other thing is, you know, the freelancing, not knowing where your resources are coming from, from month to month. And then the fact that, you know, just living in New York City, you know, I have an aversion for big cities. Even when I worked in New York, I lived in New Jersey. And then the only time I I physically had my own New York City address was when I, I had this Ford Foundation fellowship for a year. And, you know, that paid for, you know, having a nice apartment in New York. And again, I know people spend over 60% of their income just on rent in New York. And 
places like LA are expensive. So I think so much of the money goes into just basic living. You know, there's nothing left to save. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is from what I'm hearing from, you know, from people. Uh, when I lived in LA, it was, it was kind of hard for me to save, even though I was making good money, but you know, I didn't save as much as I should well, because I lived in California. It's expensive to live in California. You know, you spend half your money on gasoline because you're on the interstate all day long. Yeah. It's also interesting that you pointed out because no, no one has pointed it out yet, but it is so obvious to me that yes, I asked this about artists because I'm talking to theater people, but over half of Americans don't have any savings. Many people don't. And the answer is the same. I mean, you could say freelancers, they don't know their income, but I think it's sort of the same for everybody is the cost of living is high. And you really have to focus and pay yourself first. And if you're not doing that, you're just never going to have savings. Okay. How will COVID-19 affect the future of your design work? Actually, I was winding down anyway. So maybe this is a, a faster way to do it for me. I have three shows lined up for the spring. You know, whether they, well, I have one lined up for August. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but for me, if if I don't get to design as much, I'm okay. That means I can focus more on my research, you know, because I love both. Yeah, and, and then I don't know what the future is going to hold. I have I have no idea. But I would love to start a, a small space where people can have a facility to work in. Because either we have very large theater facilities here that most small companies can't afford. And I would love to to find a space where I could create a small theater for small dance companies, small theater companies to have a space to perform without, you know, trying to pay a fortune to rent something. Yeah. Is now a good time for students to study art? I don't feel like I should tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do. I think if you're passionate about something, like I was passionate about lighting, but I was also cautioned that I probably wouldn't make a fortune being a lighting designer. So you always need some kind of backup plan. So if you know you want to be an artist, you need to think about when times get rough, you know, how are you going to support yourself? Yeah. If you, if you go with that in mind, I would say sure. Yeah. Um, and this, this question may not apply. Like you might've already actually sort of answered it. Um, but historically New York or big cities are art artist hubs with the economy right now. And all, you know, should artists move to big cities right now? You know, it's just so expensive to live in these places. And my philosophy, his philosophy has been that, you know, if if I'm good enough, they'll call me wherever I live. I mean, I remember when I left New York, people said, oh, my God, you know, once you leave New York. Well, New York is sort of like that. You know, no one calls in artists to work in New York, <laughs> which is true. But, you know, my philosophy has been that, you know, there's theater all over the world. I've done theater in South Africa. You know, I've done theater, you know, all over the world. I don't really confine myself just to New York. You know, I, I do regional theater. I love doing regional theater. You know, I, I love being able to go different places. But if your goal is, you know, the only place you want to work is New York, then you need to be in New York City. Or if the only place you want to work is Chicago, that's where you need to move. So I, I think that's a, a personal choice that someone has to make. You know, for me, you know, theater is beyond New York City. Uh, it's beyond the United States, you know. And like I said, I, I've been blessed because, you know, because I, I have been in academia. So 
you know, it, it has given me the luxury to pick and choose the shows that I want to do, as opposed to if you're freelancing, you tend to take whatever comes your way. And, and that becomes hard because I've seen so many people work on shows, they just hate it. Uh, but they got to pay next month's rent. Very few of my students went into theater. A lot of them ended up doing architectural lighting. A lot of them ended up working for AV companies. Uh, and then they would do theater. They would pick and choose theater that they wanted to do because they could afford to. Uh, I mean, it's just so much you can do with a, a degree in lighting or, you know, skills in lighting or whatever. Well, you're the, you're the third, like, person who's been in academia. And all three of you have been very happy, have... <laughs> <laughs> have been on pretty solid financial ground, like not saying you're millionaires, but you've all no no long ways from that, yeah, but you all have like retirement plans and you're all good in that, so this is really painting it like if anybody listens to all the episodes they'll be they'll get a clear message that if you're an artist, you should try to go to academia if you want to secure financial life. <laughs> I either work for some type of firm, like I said, I've had students who've gone to work with architectural firms and uh, I've just had students do a variety of things with lighting. You know, I, I know a lot of young people, I mean, and I felt that way. It's like being in academia was meant that you were a failure, that, you know, you, you weren't really a professional lighting designer if you talk. But when you really look at statistics, most people in design are teachers. You know, they almost have to. You, I mean, you can't, unless you do 20 Broadway shows a year, it's hard to really make a living in this business or if you're just doing it like two or three shows a month. Yeah. Yeah. In academia in a way actually makes the best designers because they, I don't know, they, they're not doing as many projects or they're more informed. Like their art is more informed. They think more about their art. Whereas if you're just doing every single show to make a paycheck, you, you make lots of sacrifices or choices or you work on less quality productions than you would otherwise. Right. And I found myself doing it my first year after retirement. It was like, I was like doing sometimes two shows a month. And I said, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? And, you know, but I, I was thinking that people have to do this all the time. And it's just health wise, it's just not good. I had to stop that. It's like, I don't really have to do this. Why am I doing this? I mean, I guess the thing is, like, you don't like to say no, but it's like, no, I can say no. It's okay. Yeah. Saying no is powerful, I think, because I say I say yes. I'm, I'm in sort of that category if I say yes to everything. Yeah. You're afraid if you say no, it's like, oh, well, they'll never call me again. It's like, yeah. Okay, Be, yeah. And the reason you're afraid of that is because it happens. It happens a lot. It does. Of course. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'll find somebody else and then, oh, I'll use them all the time now. Yeah. So. Um. Okay, um, are you in any unions? I've been in USA since 1986. It's been a long time, 30-something. Yeah. Oh, side, side question, actually, because you mentioned South Africa. What shows did you do in South Africa? Because that sounds really cool. Uh, the first show I did is called, oh, oh my God, I knew you were going to ask me. It was something about Mandela. I did it in 96, and it was the year right after Mandela became president. So it was a new play. In fact, the shows I've done in South Africa were always new plays. And where were they were they in Cape Town? Is that where they've been or where have they been? It was in Johannesburg. Everybody does theater differently. You know, we're used to, you know, it's like when you go to other places, you know, find out how they do theater because it's not the same everywhere. And that was a real wake-up call for me when I did this show in South Africa. I had gone there the year before and I had spoken to a lot of people and they asked I I came back the next summer. 
through the State Department. They paid for everything because they wanted me to train um, people at this particular theater. You know, all the theaters in South Africa at the time were owned by the state. And what happened after Mandela came into office and apartheid was over, you know, blacks were not allowed to be trained in, you know, lighting or stage management or something like that. So they appointed this black man to be the artistic director of the state theater. And when they put him in charge, all the white technicians left. So they had nobody who knew how to do anything technically. So I came in that summer, I trained them in lighting and in stage management. So it's just a wonderful experience. But one of the things I learned at that time in South Africa, people didn't do subscriptions. You know, people would come the day of the show to, to see a show. And so the show I was working on, because I had a round trip ticket. I was like, oh, once the show is over, I was going to go home. So I'm working on this show, which was very stress-free because, you know, people don't stress over there. The show is supposed to open that coming weekend. The director says, we aren't ready to open the show. Let's take a three-day break and come back next week. And it's like, what? <laughs> I said, I have a round-trip ticket. It's like, well, we'll just have to use what you've worked with or whatever. And so... And I said, well, what about the tickets? What about the subscribers? Like, no one buys tickets in advance, you know. I mean, and that, that was a concept that, you know, you know, in a lot of countries, you know, that's not a concept. You know, you, you know, people saying, you're asking me to buy a ticket a year in advance. I don't even know where I'm going to be a year in advance. I don't even know if I'll have a job. You know, so that was just so uncomprehensible to a lot of people. And the second show I did in South Africa, which was in uh, Durban, same thing happened. The director says, we're not ready to open. Let's open next week. It's like, I got a round trip ticket. So now what I've learned how to do, when I go places, I, I get my ticket a week later after the show is supposed to open so I can finish it. That is amazing. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, when I travel very often, like I do notice that people are much more relaxed in other places. Yeah. I And I've been to Cape Town and it's like very relaxing there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People don't stress out. I mean, it's 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 only in the U.S. <laughs> where we do theater like it's life or death. I mean, it's like, you know, we got to get tech done. We got to have act one done by today or whatever. I remember the only time I've seen Cirque du Soleil is when I go to Canada. I usually see their early shows. And I remember talking to the lighting design. This may have been about 20 years ago. And I can't remember his name. You know, someone had to translate because he speaks French. And, you know, he said as a designer, they spend like six to seven months working on a show. And he's there with the director. They all make decisions together. And when I first went to Europe, it was the same thing. People had time to work on shows. You know, it's not like you come in two weeks and a week and a half and do a tech and get it up. There is time to literally work on shows. You know, they got to experiment with lights early on. Well, they had, well, also in, in European countries, you know, they're funded by the government, so they have that luxury. It's only in this country where it's, you know, you're doing shows like it's a life or death matter. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and it's not healthy. It's so not healthy. Like you alluded to it earlier that, like, if you're designing something, you potentially have six days a week of 16 hour days where you're going in in the morning to do notes. And then you're there until after the actors leave to have a meeting. Right. 
and I, I tell my wife, Nicole, it's like, it's not that I hate working in theater. I, I love it. But after so many weeks or months of 16 hour days for six days a week, I just, my brain doesn't work. And so it's like, I always say, if I could work on like three shows a year, yeah, I would love it. Like life would be so good. I would be so happy and everything. Right. So that's what we need. Well, maybe this, <laughs> I don't know, maybe this pandemic will make theaters rethink. I don't know. I mean, theater's going to have, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and then my other thought is that my friend Chong lives in Vienna, and he's always talking about starting an English-speaking theater there, and I'm always encouraging him to do it and hire me as a lighting designer. Right. <laughs> and But when I think of that, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. I'm going to come. But I'm thinking, am I going to have to go there for like three months because they're going to like take yeah. so long? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I would be willing to do. Right. Well, I mean, it, it seems like a long time for us, but the end product is usually amazing and people have time to be creative. You know, it's like, you know, we have a certain amount of time where we're forced to be creative. It's like, okay, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about gender inequality and perhaps racial inequality in the design theater community. It's always been there. And uh, there's a young woman named... Um, Porsche McGovern, um, I guess over the past five years, she's been really doing some wonderful statistics about women in the field. And I want to say maybe two years ago, it was like about half the women getting MFAs in lighting. And yeah, getting MFAs, but you had in New York City less than 23% of the lighting designers were women. It may be a little higher, but not that much. I mean, it's still predominantly white males that are designing in the business as well as regional theater. And, you know, if it's bad for white women, you can imagine what it is for black women. I mean, I know a lot of theaters are trying to diversify more, but uh, it's not necessarily in terms of the design team. They'll bring in women costume designers, but they don't bring in lighting and scene designers as much. I have to say that I have been fortunate. I've worked a lot in regional theaters. And I do bring this topic up quite a bit. One of the things with Black designers, I love Black theater, but we always get called for the Black show. So, you know, if, if, if you're doing a show nine times out of 10, you only get called for the Black show. And I've had to tell, you know, some theater companies like, you know, I do work outside of the month of February. You know, it doesn't have to be a Black show. I have the same degree that my colleagues from Michigan, you know, it, it needs to get better. Women, particularly of my generation, and these are white women, they just left the business because they couldn't work. You know, it was not enough work for them. You look at Broadway, you know, how many women are on Broadway? I mean, it's like maybe one or two that work and, you know, was it Jane Cox and uh, Natasha Katz? There may be one other, um, I don't know. We're just not there. Those are the only two that I, I know that are working now. I think this proves your point because I know there's more, but like the names aren't coming to my head. So it's it's the professor at Yale. Uh, oh, Jennifer Tipton? Jennifer Tipton. Did she just do a Broadway show recently? Oh, uh, well, you know, it, my recent is like the last five years. And then there's a British person who brings over transfers all the time but the numbers are still small yeah oh yeah absolutely the, the numbers are, are very very small so they, they do exist and unfortunately or fortunately <laughs> natasha has been nominated for a number of tonys and won oh right 
Right. And yeah, because her work is mainly through Disney. Oh, and I'm sorry, the woman who worked, uh, Peggy Eisner. Yes. Um, she works with Jules Fisher. But the numbers are still small when you look at the number of men working on Broadway. I think your last guest has, what, 60 Broadway shows to his name? Right. You know. Yeah. Old school. <laughs> Yeah. So, it's, um, but well, I will say there are like my peer group. There, there are a lot of women designers of my age, and a lot of black or uh, non-white designers, lighting designers, particularly. Um, so, I do think this is something that will get. No, they they're there. They're there, but they're not working like they should. Correct. That's the issue. You know, they're working, uh, but they may be working in a lot of the smaller theaters where you know, where men can come straight out of school and just get a big show. You know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, that, that was discussed in, you know, why are so few women working in lighting is because is the, you know, the impression that we don't know the technology or what, you know, this, this always comes up. Like I said, things are getting better slightly. I don't know. We're going to see what's going to happen once this pandemic is over. I don't know. Yeah. Obviously things need to be better. And, uh, but I, I want to say, I think they, I think they are getting better and I think they will as, you know, just, they are, they are slowly. So I, I have high hope for the future, but how to fix it now or how to help now? Um, I don't know. People just, is it directors need to hire these designers? I think, I think what's happening is we get more artistic directors of color. You beginning to see a change because they realize, you know, because they are minorities, they realize, okay, well, we need to be backstage as well. Yeah, it is a big problem, but I, I have hope for the future. And anybody listening to this, if you have any solutions or ways to help, <laughs> you know, please, please do. Do you know Cricket S. Myers? No, who's that? She's a sound designer. Um, she she was the first woman. She's white, but she was the first woman nominated for a Tony in sound design. Oh, good show! Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Um, also, also every other design member on that team, they're all white males, and the director. It's Mois- Moises Kaufman, David Lander. I always think that when I see that show, is like, yeah, she was the woman, but she was also the only woman on the team. <laughs> right. And and but that was that was only well, I guess it was nine years ago now. But anyway, so I talked to her on the podcast, and we talk a little bit about that um it's not released yet the other thing about you too that's really cool and i'm glad you were on the podcast is that you were not broadway like you worked in new york you did all that you've worked right. in la okay. you've worked in chicago you've worked in all the big hubs but like you said you have an aversion for the big cities and i think that's amazing to me that you've had and you you were at, connected to academia so that helped sustain your career yeah. I mean, I assisted on a Broadway show, which was an awful experience. So I don't know if that was why I didn't try and pursue Broadway. I don't know. You know, I was I was happy with the shows I did in New York City. You know, I had a chance to do stuff at, you know, a show at Carnegie Hall and uh, BAM. So I'm very content. You know, if someone calls me, we got a Broadway show for you. I'm not going to turn it down. But, you know, it was it was not my pursuit. You're di- you're different in that regard. Like you stayed away. You did regional. Most of your stuff has been regional, but you've sustained the career for so long. Yeah. And you you did like the the St. Louis Black repertory. You were there for oh yeah for almost thirty years. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. Final final two questions. 
What separates those that have an artistic career from those that stop or never start one? Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I, you know, first of all, why did someone stop? Did they stop because of financial reasons or did they never get started because they didn't think they would achieve what they wanted to do? Or I'm heard, you know, I wanted to do this, but I was afraid of uh, lack of financial security. And I think those of us who persevered, we did so because we we did it. I mean, I'm very passionate about what I do in the theater and I knew it was something I wanted to do. And, and of course, I like I said, I thought long and hard about, okay, well, what if I don't make a, a living as a lighting person? I've always had a backup plan, you know. New York City's an expensive, it's not an easy place to live. It's It's so expensive there, you know. Like I said, I have an aversion for big cities. I like yards and I like greenery and, you know. As we were, as we were doing this interview, I could hear birds in the background on your end. Are you kidding? Oh, no. okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, last question. Where can people find out more about you? I have a website. It's kathyaperkins.com. Um, and you can just Google me. If you just Google Kathy Perkins Theater or Kathy Perkins Lighting, my name will pop up. Well, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting. It was fantastic. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And uh, good luck. That was our interview with Kathy A. Perkins. My takeaways were set aside something for yourself, avoid credit cards, just have one or two, and only for the convenience of paying not to acquire debt. Open a Roth IRA so you can have tax-free income in retirement. Buying property can be a place to invest money and can be worthwhile. And finally, if you see something that can be improved, go improve it. Gender inequality and racial inequality exists in theater. There's a myriad of reasons for why that is. How do we fix it? We don't know. But certainly ignoring it is not the solution. Knowledge is power. So if we educate ourselves about the issue, that is a means to finding solutions. That's the artistic finance part of today's episode. Now I'm going to get into a niche topic specific to lighting design that Kathy and I discussed and that is gender and racial representation of lighting designers on Broadway. I took it upon myself to do some research regarding the Tony Awards for Best Lighting Design. Here are some caveats to my research. If a designer was nominated twice for two different productions during the same year, I counted that as two separate nominations. Another caveat on the nominees. I know many of the designers and their race, but many I don't know and many have passed away. There is roughly 5% whose race I haven't been able to confirm, but appear to be white. If anyone has information that any of the nominees do not identify as white, please let me know so I can update the ledger. And regarding gender, I have made no assumptions besides that of the category in which they were nominated. As a preface to the theater information, here's the gender and racial demographics of the United States from the last census data from 2010. For gender, women identified as 51% of the population, men 49%. For racial identity, white 73%, black 13%, Asian 5%, all other races 9%. I reviewed the Tony nominations from 1970 when they first gave the award for Best Lighting Design to 2019, the last Tony Awards held. So there is a 50-year data set. There were a total of 283 nominations and a total of 70 winners. Of the 283 nominations, 64 were women, or 22%. Of the 70 winners, 15 were women, 
or 23%. Women nominated for best lighting design of a play is 26%. Women nominated for best lighting design of a musical is 12%. So women are underrepresented in nominations for both categories, but even more so in the best musical category. The Tony for Best Lighting Design in a Musical has only been around for 15 years. It was first given in 2005. If we combined both categories, the percentage of women nominees is 22%. The percentage of women winners for Best Lighting Design of a Play is 25%. The percentage of women winners for Best Lighting Design of a Musical is 13%. If we combine both categories, the percentage of women who have won is 21%. Eight times there have been equal nominations of women and men. Three times there have been more women nominated than men in the best play category, 1989, 2014, and 2015. That is only in the best play category. Women have never been nominated equally or greater in the best musical category. 2015 marks the only year that women won both categories. Polly Constable for The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime for Best Play, and Natasha Katz for An American in Paris for Best Musical. Women are clearly underrepresented on Broadway, but if we get intersectional, the discrepancy gets larger. Let's break down how many of these designers were not white. And I'll include more than black women in these statistics, I'll refer to all BIPOC, which includes Black, Indigenous, and any person of color. Of the 23% of women who have won a Lighting Design Tony Award, zero are BIPOC. Of the 22% of women who have been nominated, also zero were BIPOC. So that's a 100% disparity when it comes to the women. If we include men, the statistics change, but ever so slightly. Of 283 nominees for the Lighting Design Tony, there were three nominees of a black man. That is 1% of all nominees. And it was the same man three different times, Alan Lee Hughes. How many times did he win a Tony? Zero. If we expand that from black men to include BIPOC men, the stats don't change. 1% of all Tony nominations have gone to BIPOC men, and zero Tony Award wins. To reiterate, in 50 years of Lighting Design Tony Awards, zero wins have been awarded to anyone in the BIPOC community, and only one person has been nominated. I would like to give a special note that a female designer, Jean Rosenthal, designed lights for more than 85 Broadway shows, but that was before there was a Lighting Design Tony. Another designer of note was Shirley Prendergast, who was the first African-American woman accepted into the lighting category of the United Scenic Artists Design Union. The shorthand for the design union is USA 829. Shirley was accepted the same year that Jean Rosenthal passed away, 1969. Shirley designed six Broadway shows and worked on 15, but was never nominated for a Tony Award. A little more history on USA 829. It was founded in 1895 as the United Scenic Artists Association. The first black female to be accepted was Louise Evans Briggs Hall, who came in as a costume designer in 1953. So the union was established 58 years before a black female was accepted into its ranks. And it was 74 years before Shirley Prendergast became the first black female accepted into the lighting category. Not much changed after Shirley was accepted. 
it would be another 17 years before a second black female lighting designer was admitted into USA 829. The year was 1986, and the designer was Kathy Perkins. Today, as I record this information, it is June 22, 2020, and only three black designers have ever designed lights on Broadway. Shirley Prendergast, Alan Lee Hughes, and William Grant. Just that fact tells us how far we have to go in this country in terms of black designers and their relationship with the union. To check out these statistics, visit our website, artisticfinance.com, and see the show notes for episode 8. I have posted this data and welcome any feedback or cross-checking of this work. It's a learning process for us all, and I welcome the dialogue. I'll end this podcast by reiterating what Kathy said about minority lighting designers. They're out there, but why aren't they getting the jobs? That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.